Welcome to the Tune In and Level Up podcast. I am Glenda Hovenkamp, your host, and so happy you tuned in for a few minutes of leveling up together. I love having deep conversations on meaningful topics, some spiritual, some practical. Come as you are, tune in while walking, cooking dinner, driving, or just putting your feet up at the end of the day. Here's to both of us getting some takeaways that help in our leveling up journey. Today I'm interviewing Diane Byron, and she is the nicest person you'll ever meet. She's a two-time cancer survivor, hiked the Grand Canyon in a day. She coaches midlife women and helps them have extraordinary second halves of their lives. She's a firm believer that everyone gets to go from stuck to unstoppable. Stay tuned for Diane. Diane, I wanted to welcome you to the Tune In and Level Up podcast. And are you ready for some questions? I am. Thank you so much for having me, Glenda. I'm so excited to dig into the topics of what we get to create as women in the world making a difference. Well, I am thrilled and honored to have you as a guest. So as we start off, I wanted to ask you um, what you have to say about not letting circumstances stop you from achieving your dreams. Can you tell us all your good stuff about that topic? Absolutely. One of the things I notice very often, I've been a coach for four years, one of the, and I've been a nurse for over 30 years. And what I notice is so many people let outside circumstances determine their mood, their action, their behavior, and what they're going to create in their lives. And that's all fine. If that's how you want to live your life, that's actually allowing yourself to be a victim to whatever's happening in the world and actually giving your power away. And one of the most important things that I think in the, in the world that we get to change is really recognizing our own strength and our own power. And the first step is actually identifying where you are right here. Like, where am I right now? Because you don't want to be in la-la land and thinking everything is magical. And you also don't want to be beating yourself up thinking I should have been further. I should have done whatever. You want, you just like, okay, I'm here today. It's like you're starting a race. Well, if you're starting a race, you have to know where the finish line is because otherwise you're just wandering all over, which is fine some days, but if you're actually in the race, you want to actually finish the race. So the first part of that is creating a vision. So for example, when you create a vision for what you're creating in your life, you will absolutely find the right route. and You don't have to know the right route every moment. When back in 2015, my daughter asked me, mom, can we move to California? And I said, okay. And we lived in New, uh, New England. We had shoveled, I don't know, seven and a half feet of snow that year. And I just was kind of pacifying my 12 year old. And then the next day I was like, oh, hey, wait, California might not actually be a bad idea. I wanted to go to California when I went into the Navy in 1990. Here it is, 2015. And also there's people I know in San Diego. So I set the sights in my mind of 
yeah, I want to move to San Diego. And what I created next was the next step, always just the next right step. But I went to bed every night thinking about walking on the beach in San Diego, even though I had never been there. I didn't know what it looked like, but I could look at, you know, Google. I could look at images and picture myself at the beach. And when I did that, everything that came at me was just one more thing to overcome. It was, I turned obstacles into opportunities. For example, I had to sell my house. I was a single mom selling my house. I got support. I got a realtor. I got people to help me unpack it, unload it, have the yard sale, do all the things. Then I went to California, to San Diego for the first time ever on vacation. And my house sold over asking no contingencies back in Massachusetts while I was on vacation because my vision was so strong. I was enrolling everybody into working with me on my vision. We came back, we moved, we got an apartment. And I was suddenly out of nowhere diagnosed with thyroid cancer. And the doctor's like, okay, so it's now February. My calendar's really booked up. I can do your surgery in May. And I was like, well, I'm actually leaving for California on June 20th. So what can we do to create something different? Because this is really important to me. And I know I need recovery time. And then I need to have a radiation treatment. And he's like, well, you know, my calendar's booked. And I just looked at him and I was like, got it. Is there anything else that we can do? And he's like, hold on just a moment. He walked out and he came back in and he said, I've opened up my calendar for March 30th just for you. (laughs) Because I enrolled him in the vision. So I had surgery on the 30th. I had treatment in May. And six weeks later, I was on the road to San Diego with my daughter and two dogs in a minivan because I enrolled them in their vision. So when you have outside stuff come at you, because life is going to keep happening regardless of what our vision is, but you make your vision so important that you turn every obstacle into an opportunity. I gave that doctor an opportunity to be generous to me. And in the course of our conversation after that, I discovered I had actually worked with the same doctors that were taking care of his son who has congenital heart defects. What are the chances that that's who I would end up with as a doctor? So that's the magic of connections that happens when you create a vision. I love this, Diane. So you mentioned your coaching program and Mm -hmm. I I have learned from you that it's called the unstoppable heart coaching. Can you tell us how and why you picked that name? So Unstoppable Heart has been something that's been in me for a very long time. I'm also writing a book of the same name, Unstoppable Heart, from Surviving to Thriving. And where it came from, Glenda, is I was born in 1968 with an incredibly serious heart defect. It was so serious. In fact, when they discovered it, they told my mother, who was a nurse, not to do any research on it, not to read anything about it, because they were so busy doing research on it, they weren't having time to write on it. Well, my mother was a nurse, and so of course she's going to do the thing. We were in Boston, and she ran across the street to the Harvard Coop, which was a bookstore. And my parent, my dad was a state trooper, and they're, you know, the 
textbooks were there. They were a lot of money. My mother's like, can't afford to buy it. So you be the lookout and I'm going to read about this. And she went and she read about the heart condition that I had just been diagnosed with at the age of 19 days. And she looked at my father and said, she's going to die. And because there was no, in the research, it was a 0% survival rate because they literally hadn't had time to write what the research had been creating, the work that they had been doing at Children's and other hospitals. And when my mom went back in, they're like, nope, she's doing okay. We've done this one procedure that's going to keep her okay until she's old enough to do the surgery. And I was in and out of the hospital for the next two and a half years. Even then, two and a half years later, the survival rate at Children's Hospital was 45%. But there was a doctor doing a study in Buffalo. And his survival rate was 90%. So we went out to see Dr. Subramanian was his name. And the really remarkable thing about Dr. Subramanian is And I get chills thinking about it because it's true leadership and saying yes to things that don't make sense. He was an orthopedic surgeon who was asked to take over the cardiac surgery department. (laughs) Makes no logical sense. It's completely different from everything that he had been operating on. And he said yes. And he dove into it. And he discovered and worked with other cardiac surgeons to create different things. And there was a Dr. Mustard that created the surgery that I had done. He created it probably in the early 1960s. And Dr. Subramanian created a different procedure to go along with that in like 1968, the year I was born. So in 1970, he's doing surgery on me. They told my mother that I would be in the hospital Uh, for about three months in ICU for five weeks because I needed to, you know, get all the treatment. Well, we went out in November of 1970. And in my little head, this is creating a vision again. I can only think this is how it happened. I didn't want to miss Christmas at my house. Like that wasn't going to be possible for this two and a half year old. I have three (laughs) older, five older uh, brothers and sisters, three older brothers and two older sisters. They did the surgery. I was in the ICU for five days and I'm in the hospital for three weeks and I was home in time for Christmas. And I just kept going and kept going. And my parents never really told me my story. Seven, when I was six and a half, I had second surgery that corrected another defect. And then I just went on with my life. I went to nursing school. I was in nursing school And I came home at age 19 and I said to my mother, so we just covered the pediatric heart today. Did you know I could have died? And my mother went, yes, I do. (laughs) Maybe I should tell you the story. So (laughs) since that moment, I thought about being unstoppable and I applied to be in the United States Navy. I was in the United States Navy nurse corps for a period of time. I was medically retired when I was 23. And I went to work at Children's Hospital, which is where I had my second surgery in Boston. And I worked on the cardiac 
surgery unit because I wanted to give back to these nurses and give full, like pay it forward from these nurses and doctors who saved my life multiple times. And I saw people who had the same defect I had and they were in wheelchairs. They were on oxygen and they were there. Like, I was like, whoa, why is different? Why am I here? Went in the Navy, I played football and, you know, I did all these things and I discovered they did a lot of, they're there, they're there. And they, their parents did out of fear where my parents were like, you're one of six, like keep going. Like you got the same chores, you got the same everything. And that's in my brain at like 23 started this unstoppable because I was taught that nothing got to get in my way of creating my vision. And of course, because of the heart defects, it became unstoppable heart. And I managed to create another obstacle when I had the cancer years later, and I've had it twice, I've been diagnosed with cancer twice, knock on wood, I found out literally last night that I am in remission for the fourth year in a row, which is the best I can hope for, which is great. I'm very excited about it. And I know that heart defects, a blood clot in my leg, cancer twice, none of that has stopped me. And I believe when you live with this vision of not invincibility, I'm human just like everybody else. I have bad days sometimes. Living without a thyroid is a challenge at times. And I don't let it stop me. And I'm on a mission, a vision for women in particular, but everybody to hear this gets to be your vision. You get to be unstoppable in your commitment to your vision. Oh, Diane, I love your courage and your stamina and your determination. You told us beautifully about your, your unstoppable heart coaching program and what unstoppable means to you. I'd love to know more about your mission and vision about what you're creating. Thank you for asking, Glenda. And, you know, I'm going to kind of put a couple pieces of what I'm thinking about in my mind and share with you. One of the ways I grew up was with my mom who was unstoppable in her own way. She, in her later years, she really tolerated and got through a lot. Um, we lost my dad um, 30 years ago. So he was only 67 and she had just been diagnosed with breast cancer the year before. And so she had breast cancer. And then a month after she had, or a week after she had surgery, my dad went in the hospital with heart issues for the first time in 18 years since his first heart attack back when he was 48. And he was in the hospital in and out of the hospital every six weeks. And his, they had a love that was really unbelievable. They had each other's back. And my dad would always say, my life began when I met your mother. He didn't talk about his history. He was 18 when he went to D-Day plus 21 in the World War II. And my mom was home. She had five brothers. 
And they met after that. And he was on the state police. He saw a lot of tough things, but their marriage was super tight. And they raised the six of us to really not let anything stop us. My dad didn't graduate from high school yet became a lieutenant in the state police and went on to work for American Express as an investigator because he didn't let that stop him. My mom was also a nurse. And after she lost my dad, she blossomed in a different way because her version, you know, she was a very much depression era baby. I take care of the home and house. And she just devoted herself to taking care of family. After my dad died, she started to really blossom and she was always off doing different things. And she really stood as a caregiver all her life. She care gave for both my grandparents on her side and my dad's mom and then my dad. And then she had five brothers and she lost all five of her brothers after she lost my dad. And it was like a continuous experience of her just giving and giving, and then having that, how do I get through this? How do I get through this? Then she herself had cancer again in um, 2000, the end of 1999-2000, she ended up, she lost her vision five years before she died, six years before she died. She had um, high blood pressure. She had all these issues, but she never stopped. So she, and she looked at everything with gratitude, meaning she lost her vision, which meant she could no longer read. And this is a woman who loved to read. She had a book in every room in the house. And we discovered the Library of Congress has books on tape. So I became the person that was the person that ordered the books for her. And the, in the five-ish, five, six years between the time she was diagnosed and the time she passed away, she read by listening over 500 books in that period of time. And it was books that I was actually reading, you know, handbooks I was reading. So we would even talk about it. She would do things like she'd watch, she'd watch Law and Order. She couldn't see them. But because she had watched it so long, she knew who was talking when. And there was not one thing that stopped her. She flew to Florida on her own. I took her to the gate. My sister picked her up at the gate. Like she didn't let that stuff stop her. And even when she got cancer the last time, she was in this place of, I'm not fighting it because Diane, don't fight things like that which is where I learned to not fight the cancer I had. I didn't fight the cancer. I looked at it, said, oh, that doesn't work. And I started working on healing myself. So as I watched my mother have gratitude for 42 years, 43 years with my dad, she had gratitude for having, you know, 12 grandchildren by the time she passed away. She got to spend time with all her grandchildren. She really taught me to have gratitude about the challenges we face. And that's what allows them to turn obstacles into opportunities. So I believe that there are so many women out there in particular. And I remember myself looking back when I was in my 20s thinking midlife was like old. And now I'm 54 going, oh no, I've just begun. And I feel like I've done more living since I turned 47 and decided to sell my house and move across the country 
than I did in the 47 years before. So I feel like in seven years, I've done way more living. And I've discovered what connection, accountability, deep conversations with people and standing for other people for their greatness really means. And I truly believe that we can start a movement of that, a vision. I want all women to not look at, oh, well, I've raised my kids. Now what do I do? Or those who haven't had kids. Okay, I've spent 25 years of my career that I didn't really love. I left a nursing career after 25 years. It was a great career. I've been a single mom for 11 years. I was able to fully keep my own house pay my own bills. I didn't need to depend on my ex-husband for income. Great career that at 25 years, I was like, I don't think I like it anymore. I'm going to look for something different. So I'm on a mission for women to actually move towards what lights them up. What vision have they put aside since they had kids or since they got into that job or since they had to do the thing they had to do? What is it they've missed? What do they want to create next? And then allowing them space to create the vision such they feel it. And when you feel the vision, that's when nothing gets in your way. And I think the more women, I mean, and men, this works for men too. I work with women. So, um, but when people recognize that midlife or even I mean, my mother lost my dad at 66. The next 15 years, she did great, even though she lost her vision for a couple of those years. It wasn't until she was like 82, 83 that she really started to have some suffering. But I have literally seen people who are 82, 83, 84 choose. I'm going to do something different right now, light up the world, and I just sit back and go, I just applaud them because I'm like, that's inspiring. We get to live our life such that we're living every moment of it because there's a preciousness to our lives. I don't know if it's because I'm a cancer survivor. I don't know if it's because I was 24 when my dad died. My daughter never met my dad. She only has certain memories of my mom, but there's moments that we can never get back that if we're not present to them, we're going to lose them. And we can't spend all our lives working or doing, doing, doing. It's time, especially in midlife, when we get to actually move forward with the vision we had. My dad used to say all the time, I'm going to take your mom to the Grand Canyon. I'm going to take your mom to the Grand Canyon once I retire. He never made it. He made it years before without her. But she went three years later on her own with some friends of theirs. And if we keep waiting for the perfect moment, those moments don't happen. Mm -hmm. We miss it. We're too sick. We're too this. We're too that. Every moment we have is precious. And so when we're looking at people in our lives, we get to encourage each other and be community to move the vision forward. I'm not doing this alone. 
I have best friends who I hiked that Grand Canyon with in one day, down one side and up across the bottom and up the other side. Did it with my best friends. Because when we do it together, it's way more fun. Mm -hmm. And that's the vision I see that we get to create in the world, something that's missing. Oh, Diane, uh, one of the things I hear in your story is the power of having a strong role model. You had your mother and, of course, your father, too, but the power of a strong woman in your life. And now you're you've become a strong woman and you are offering that to other women, which is such a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, so I would I do not want us to to end our time together without you having a chance to pass on any messages to our our listeners that you want to be sure that they they hear from you today. There's a couple things, Glenda. The first is I've started a mantra recently and I'm sharing it with everybody because I think it really goes to how to be unstoppable. And I literally, you can't, y'all are listening, you can't see it, but I have post-its and I believe in the power of the post-it. And this post-it says, I am my top priority. Because when I am my top priority, then I'm able to generate and give. Because when we give generously, from an overflowing cup, not emptying our own cup, then we allow other people to learn to receive. So that's the first thing is when you make yourself a top priority, it's not selfish. It's actually allowing you to give of yourself in a different way. The second thing is asking for support is never ever a failure or a weakness. It's a strength. And I will absolutely tell you, I know it myself, because when I had cancer the first time, I made sure it was okay for everybody else that I had cancer. I spent my my entire time with that first time caretaking other people. The only person I should have made that okay with is my 12-year-old daughter at the time, because she needed to know I wasn't going to die and I was going to be okay, not like her grandmother. The second time the cancer came back, my sister was on the phone with the doctor telephonically because we were in California. She was on speak, you know, speakerphone. My best friend was with me in the doctor's office. When I had surgery, my sister flew out here. My brother came out to support me afterwards. My daughter started high school from my best friend's house. I allowed support and it really showed me that people are just waiting to give you support but if you don't open your hands to receive it, you're actually telling them you don't want their gift. And it's a gift. And when I learned that for myself, I said, I don't want anybody to have to be flat on their back in a hospital bed before they're willing to ask for support. I want people to know that you can be standing tall in your power and still ask for support because it's not a weakness, it's actually a strength. And you're giving someone else a gift. And I think that's the important thing. When you think about unstoppability, it's not going, going, going. It's being present, giving and receiving support, being vulnerable, and really knowing your worth and connecting with everybody else's worth and seeing the best for everybody else. Oh, Diane, I feel like I've been in the presence of greatness today. And you have thank you. 
given us a big bundle of love. And just on behalf of our listeners, I just want to say thank you so much for your time and for your grace. Thank you. What a sweet, sweet share. I'll be sure to leave um, information in the show notes about how our listeners can contact you and find out more about Unstoppable Heart Coaching and about your book that might be coming out soon. And awesome. Just give you a big old hug and say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to you and for your listeners as a gift. I'm going to send you a link to a worksheet, a PDF that says that's five steps to go from stuck to unstoppable so that they can in the moment have something from this interview, something they can not only listen to, but something they can refer to so that they can actually step into their greatness from the moment they hear the interview. And then they can contact me and I'm here to support them anytime. Beautiful. I'll provide them with the email address so that they can get that wonderful PDF. And I will probably awesome. be, I'll be first in line, Diane. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Thank you so much, Glenda. This has been Thank a pleasure. You. Thank you for joining me for this episode of tune in and level up. Please come back. Until next time, let's make every day and every opportunity count.